Guardian Unlimited. It's Islam, but not as we know it. Hello, I'm Riyaz Akbat. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, your regular fix of all things halal from The Guardian. It's a podcast made by Muslims, for Muslims, but I am being told what to do by middle-aged, middle-class white men. In this week's show, we have stirring stuff from the mean streets of Whitechapel, a cheeky look at religious rulings, tales of the unexpected from the Muslim world, and I'm joined throughout all of this by Rahul Tarafdar, the National Campaign Coordinator for Human Rights Group, the 1990 Trust. He is heavy, but he ain't my brother. Everyone is talking about us, and never in a good way. But occasionally someone says something sensible, like those people at Think Tank Demos. They have published a report about efforts to tackle terrorism and extremism in Britain's Muslim communities. Despite many government-led initiatives to engage us in the war on terror, there hasn't been much progress. Dr Catherine Fieschi, one of the authors of the report, explained why. Most Muslims feel that one of the things that the government refuses to engage on properly is the issue of foreign policy. Whereas, in fact, if you ask most Muslims in most communities, if there is one thing they share is their disagreement and their resentment against this policy. I'm here on the noisy, dirty streets of East London, the scene of last year's two-fingered salute to the Blair government when the anti-war candidate gorgeous George Galloway pinched a safe seat from Blair babe Boona King. Here, more than 45% of the population is Muslim and you can't move for beards, niqabs or Bengalis, which is no bad thing in my book. The director of the London Muslim Centre, which is based here in Whitechapel, Dilawar Khan, agrees that the government must share much of the blame for the appalling relations between them and us. The government is trying to shut us up and say, you know, don't talk about this. And so this is alienating, I think, in the Muslim community. They feel that they don't, their voice is not being heard. But it wasn't always like this. After 7-7, the government realised that there had to be more dialogue and more interaction with the British Muslim population. There were attempts to improve relationships between the authorities and Muslims. So what happened? The criticisms of the whole process are just overwhelming. That it was too rushed, that the agenda was entirely set by the government as opposed to being jointly set by the communities and the government, that the preventing extremism task forces was you know, poorly handled, and more to the point, that the recommendations that were made were not actually taken up. So there are plenty of problems, but what did Demos recommend? The more developed the community infrastructure, the easier it is for security, everybody's security. There's a big difference between the places where that community infrastructure is highly developed, for example in Birmingham, and where the community infrastructure is infinitely less developed, for example Leeds. Mr Khan, who works with one of the biggest Muslim congregations in the capital, explains what his organisation is doing. We've been trying to bring people to the real teachings of Islam and our, our imams have has been delivering lectures uh, in Bengali, in Arabic, in English you know, over the last 15 years and he's trying to teach, give the real teachings of Islam to the people. I think that's the key. I mean, if people understand the true teachings of Islam, then they will not end up uh, killing innocent people. And the locals seem to agree. I would preach Islam. 
I'd make them know what Islam is about. They ain't got a clue about what it's about. I think also to, you can even teach non-Muslims if they want to know. Preaching in the non-Muslim non-Muslim area, I'd say if you preach and let everyone, the non-Muslims know that this is what Islam is about and that's what Islam isn't about. Islam is against killing and hate. If you don't have the luxury of working in a government department, you're not working in the public sector, maybe you don't belong to a particular mosque or a particular charity where you can make a difference, what can the bog-standard Muslim do? There needs to be an emergence of a whole new category of leaders in Muslim communities. It seems to me that we mean two things by this. Uh, one is we mean more women, <laughs> and the second is also we mean people from a different generation. It's quite clear that a lot of young Muslims are alienated by the fact that the leaders in their communities are people with whom they have very, very little in common. Are there too many bearded old men in charge? Sometimes what it is, you know the older bearded men, they get too involved with politics, so they try to talk like a politic, making out like this is this, this is that. But sit down and personally within amongst your own community, say, talk about Islam, you'd hear what Islam really is. They make Islam look bad, so the old men are sort of creating more, more problems. Get the youngsters up on the stage and get them but to say... Not, but to not just any old youngster, people yeah. that know what they're doing. The second way I think that an ordinary individual can make a difference is probably to make sure that information circulates. We are great believers at Demos of whether it's blogging, contributing to online magazines, contributing to offline magazines. Despite their importance, these are small communities and actually individual voices can probably count for much more than, you know, highly organized, super sophisticated enormous communities you probably need to make the most of you know what could be considered a weakness which is small numbers actually small numbers means that individuals count more that was dr catherine fieschi from demos and the Khan from the london muslim center and not forgetting our young ladies from the Whitechapel area with me in the studio is Rahul. Rahul, from my own experiences as a reporter, and because I've been through the report and I've been keeping an eye on this story for a while now, I get the feeling that there are some Muslims who semi-condone terrorist or extremist behaviour by not cooperating with law enforcement agencies. What do you think? Well, I think the vast majority of Muslims are completely against any form of terrorism. In terms of working with the law enforcement agencies... There's issues like stop and search when there's been like, you know, 38,000 odd stops of the Muslim community and 12 convictions. Now, I'm sure that those convictions were as a result of surveillance, whereas, you know, the other 37,000 and, and, and whatever, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, lots of people in the community feel that they are unfairly um, being treated. And, you know, sometimes terrorism legislation is being used as a fishing tool to harass communities. I mean, you've got a situation, you was talking a lot about Tower Hamlets, and, you know, I've lived there for quite a few years, and there's many cab drivers who work in the West End in the city, and, you know, often they're complaining about the amount of times they're stopped and searched, um, their, their vehicles, their, their cars, and similarly, many youths that live in a lot of these states in the areas are saying that they're being stopped under terrorism legislation, implying that, you know, somehow that they are part of the, the terrorism problem. So basically you're saying that the attitude of the police and of the government actually creates alienation and resentment and it makes it harder to stop any kind of extremist behaviour because nobody trusts the law. Yeah, I would, I would agree that many of the measures are counterproductive in the sense that the government seems to be in complete denial about foreign policy and for me that is the essential reason 
for why there are is the blowback from the foreign policy which has resulted in the deterioration of community relations. OK, we'll come back to more of this later. Muslims take their faith very seriously. You only have to look at the uproar surrounding the publication of Danish cartoons to realise that. Islam is a way of life for us. I once heard someone describe it as a manual. But modern life throws all sorts of problems at you and you don't always have the answers at your fingertips. So what to do? To guide you through those dilemmas is fatwa focus. Now, a fatwa is not an edict telling you to go out and kill Salman Rushdie. Fatwas can deal with subtle points of Islamic law, or they can deal with a humdrum. Because this is The Guardian, we're looking at more mundane matters. Hi, my name is Leila, and I'd like to know what the ruling is concerning plucking your eyebrows. Hi, my name's Ali, and what I want to know is, am I allowed to read on the toilet? Okay, is it permissible for a woman to send a photograph of herself via the internet to a man looking to get married but who lives far away so he can see her, what she looks like and decide whether he wishes to marry her or not? So, those were the questions and here are the answers. Ladies, step out of those salons. You are not allowed to remove or shorten your eyebrows. The Prophet ﷺ cursed those who removed eyebrows and those who did the removing. So it is, unfortunately, time to embrace that Dennis Healy look. You can't read any material on the toilet that mentions Allah or any of his other names. To be on the safe side, you should avoid taking anything into the loo that contains verses from the Qur'an. As regards photos in the internet, it's possible that someone other than the person intended could see the picture and make mischief with it, interpret that how you will, or the person intended could make mischief with it also. In either case, Allah knows best. I think that means it's not really a good idea to do this. So, Rahul, what did you make of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> Have you ever looked at women's <laughs> pictures on the internet? <laughs> well, it was quite um, interesting to hear some of these questions because I didn't know that, um, you know, that women weren't allowed to pluck their eyebrows, for example, so that's quite news for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't need to pluck your eyebrows. I don't have to worry, I suppose. <laughs> no, but I do. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I just guess it shows that there are rulings and teachings for every single aspect of your life. Yeah, I suppose um, the reality is that Islam is a complete way of life and there are rules and regulations to that. And often what might sound, you know, really weird, you know, why can't Muslim women, you know, pluck their eyebrows, particularly um, living in a Western modern-day society and everything. But um, if that's what's written in the texts, you know, whatever the rules and regulations are, I think that you have to have a respect for them and whether you abide by it or not, that might be your choice that you have to answer for. Um, let's go back to the Demos report. Um, you talked about how government measures and policing measures were being counterproductive. We also heard from Dr Catherine Fieschi saying that there needed to be a new generation of leaders, younger people, such as yourself, and women, such as myself. But bearing in mind the demands on us from our religion, from our culture, and probably more than that, our families, how can we get more involved with the way our lives are being shaped? How can we take control? I think it's very important to encourage young people in particular to take on these kind of positions. I've just actually come back from working in um, Warrington and Leeds last week and I was doing work with um, one of the schools where the, where the bombers are from in Leeds where two schools have actually been merged into one and one was predominantly a white school and one was predominantly an Asian school and there's been kind of conflicts at that place and we've been doing a lot of work with them about leadership, about understanding and relationships and a lot of the time you know it's just that people aren't always aware of all the kind of circumstances around issues and you know 
many of these kids had a fantastic experience of actually understanding the opposite kind of... Point of view. Yeah, point, yeah. Po point of view in that way. How can we get a new crop of, I don't want to use the word community leaders, but how can we get new community leaders from different ethnic backgrounds? They don't all have to be Pakistani. They shouldn't all have to be men. They shouldn't all have to be 70-plus and drawing their pensions. I think it has to be quite organic and you can't kind of impose leaders upon communities. So there has to be some kind of natural talent coming out of communities. I think that talent is there, but often it seems to me at the moment that the government is interested in orchestrating a representation for Muslims that particularly suits them. And I don't want to you know, mention names of organisations. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> there's a few new organisations that spring to mind that you know, I don't see with any real legitimacy within the communities, but it seems that these are the voices that the government want to listen to and are going to listen to. And there seems to be this idea of creating, in terms of for the Muslim community, these kind of Blair Muslims and if, <laughs> if, if, if anyone... It's another is, Blair project, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and if anyone's in kind of opposition to that line of thinking, yeah. then they will be labelled as extremists. Thank you, Rahul. Also with me in the studio is our newly appointed Middle East editor, Ian Black, who's been casting a discerning eye over stories from around the Muslim world. So, Ian, what have you found? There's a couple of very interesting stories that touch on the theme of press freedom in the Arab world. And Maghrabiya, which is a, a website that deals with North Africa, has been writing about the, the case of the Moroccan journalists who were fined this week for um, running a story about jokes. They got into very serious trouble because they devoted an issue of their magazine, Nishan, it was called, an Arabic magazine, uh, to the way Moroccans tell uh, jokes about sex, religion and politics. And that was a pretty dangerous mixture. And it ended up with them being prosecuted in a case which has caused real concern about press freedom in Morocco, a relatively liberal, liberalising mm. constitutional monarchy. They got off with a fine and the magazine being closed for a couple of months. There has been much condemnation of that from press freedom groups and so on, but at the end of the day they thought they got off quite lightly. It's a big theme, I think, and we came across this, the same kind of thing at a conference in Jordan the other day with Arab journalists and media figures from across the, the Middle East and North Africa calling for the abolition of the information ministry. that has been a, a feature of many many Middle Eastern governments, uh, and they decided quite rightly, I think, that you know, media freedom shouldn't need uh, government ministries to, to look after it. Um, and there's another sad aspect of the same story in Gaza, where there's so much trouble in the Gaza Strip, where Al Arabiya, which is one of the big uh, TV mm. channels, uh, had its office attacked by a bomb a few days ago because people didn't like its coverage of Palestinian politics, Hamas and Fatah. This is a very volatile issue. And actually today there have been demonstrations protesting against that attack on media freedom in a very, very volatile place indeed. So there's a lot of that issue about. There's a very nice, rare thing, a positive story about cooperation between Israelis and Arabs, Israelis and Jordanians in this case, people who live on either side of the border between the two countries near the Dead Sea, have been getting together to talk about the problem of flies. In this area, there is, uh, there's a difficulty with a particular fly that's attracted by a fertiliser, and ecologists from Jordan and an ecologist from Israel, I think from Friends of the Earth, got together to discuss how they could deal with this. So 
Israelis and Jordanians talking about a no-fly zone. Boom. Rare piece of good news. Okay. Saudi Arabia newspaper Watan has been reporting on an unusual criminal case of a drug user who's been sentenced to spend six months memorizing the Quran. Now, a Muslim who uh, memorizes the Quran, a tremendous feat, I think there are 77,000 plus words, earns the title of Hafiz, somebody who can remember the whole holy book. It's going to take him about two years to do that. But if he fails, his sentence will be doubled to a year in prison. So that's a big challenge for a Saudi Arabian So he's user. got six months to memorise the whole Quran? Well, I don't know whether he's got six months to do it. It takes, uh, on average, two years two to years. do, so you would hope he'll have longer. But well, if he's he fails, in prison, so he won't have much else to do, well, if he fails, he'll spend, be spending more time in prison. But a, a challenge and a very, very innovative piece of criminal uh, justice, I would have said. Thanks for that, Ian, and thank you, Rahul. I'm Riaza. That was Islamophonic, and Jazakallah for listening. The show was produced by Francesca Panetta, and the splendid theme tune was by Aki Nawaz. Guardian Unlimited.